Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, January the 28th. 2024 Sunday is supposed to be a day of rest intellectually and physically although I'm not sure the universities these days ever shut they always seem to be a, a place of controversy an interesting weekend essay in the New Yorker by a Harvard academic Jeannie Sook Gerson on the future of academic freedom she's not very optimistic lots of other headlines about what seems to be the increasing intolerance online the absence of freedom of speech as a Big controversy about Barnard Colleges uh, in New York City, the sister college to Columbia. It's restrictions on political speech, particularly, of course, in terms of what's happening in Gaza, Israel, Palestine. Lots of people believe that this fracas, as it's described by the Chronicle of Higher Education, is a threat to academic freedom. Whether academic freedom actually exists or not is an open question. One man all too familiar with all these questions is a former chancellor at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, my alma mater just over the bay from San Francisco, uh, Nicholas Dirks. He was involved in an early controversy back in 2016. Uh, he no longer is the chancellor, but he has a book, City of Intellect, The Uses and Abuses of the University, which is out next week, and he's joining us from New York City. Nicholas, congratulations on the new book. I wonder when you look at all these headlines, whether you you thank your lucky stars that you no longer run a major university. Well, there are many days I wake up and I uh, have that calm, peaceful feeling that uh, clearly is not the kind of feeling I would have if I were chancellor or president of a major university indeed yeah these are uh these are times that um not just the job of president but i think the entire uh you know position of the university is under is under public attack question uh, uh evaluation and uh and you know the experience that i had as chancellor of berkeley between 2012 and 2017 uh in an odd way gave me a kind of preview of many of the things that are going on now, but they've only become more intense uh, and um, and more difficult, I think. Uh, uh, but at the same time, more, I think, uh, 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 it's, it's clearer than ever before that uh, both the university has to do things to respond to some of the criticisms that are being made. Uh, and it has to begin to uh, re-articulate what it is that is so important about the university so that we don't see it all go down in flames. Yeah, speaking of flames, Americans love their barbecues, but all these university pre presidents, three of them in particular, we all know their names and faces, um, they've all been grilled by the House and criticism on the left by Democrats. And of course, they were grilled by a particularly uh, vocal uh, Republican critic. How much of a surprise is all this for you, um, uh, um, Nicholas? Is this something that you could have imagined when you were at Berkeley, or is it in some ways taken you by surprise? Well, not only I think could I imagine it, but in some respects, as I as I just said, I actually saw, you know, 
I saw trailers for it uh, up close and personal. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. I mean, even going back to my experience as dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Columbia, uh, which a role I began in 2004, I mean, the whole first year that I was a dean, I was dealing with questions around the Middle East and around academic freedom and around outside pressures to, uh, uh, to, to uh, uh, effectively to either fire some faculty or change the way in which certain courses were being taught. So I had, I had a, a certainly a, a previous experience of the way the politics of the Middle East can intrude onto the university campus. But at Berkeley, even more so, and I was there, for example, when we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the free speech movement that, of course, took place in 1964 uh, by 2014, uh, you know, we were able both uh, uh, in the university center and at the Free Speech Cafe, which is right adjacent to the chancellor's office, uh, uh, we were able to celebrate free speech and the whole set of protests that led to it. Uh, but as we did so, I think there were already some storm clouds on the horizon, con growing concerns about uh, about hate speech on campus, even though hate speech had been specifically protected by the uh, uh, by the courts uh, when they were when it was when various prohibitions on hate speech were introduced, for example, at the University of Michigan, even back in the 1980s, uh, and um, uh, and in fact uh, by 2015, 16, 17, I had a whole series of encounters on campus that uh, again uh, anticipate what's been going on today. The most conspicuous of which was when uh, the young Republicans at Berkeley invited Milo Yiannopoulos to come to campus. Yeah, I know Milo, actually. I, I knew him years ago, and he's quite, he's, a, he's an obnoxious guy, but I'm not yeah. sure Yeah, no, he's right a, to shut him up. He's a completely obnoxious guy, and he says a lot of terribly offens offensive things. But he Knowingly, was, on purpose, because actually, if you know him personally, he's not, he's certainly not as bad as he appears in public. <laughs> Well, as it happens, I never got to meet him because you were lucky. Um, uh, well, you know, he was in the basement waiting to come up and speak to to students when we had a major riot on campus, and we had protests both, uh, you know, uh, uh, for having him speak, uh, threats that we were going to have the Proud Boys on campus, but in fact, uh, an assault that came in from a group of Antifa, who shut the event down and actually made it impossible for us to. Uh, guarantee his safety so we had to usher him back to his hotel. yeah and, and nicholas is the problem do you think and and i know you've given a lot of thought to this and you write about it in the book is the problem the broader culture that people are increasingly intolerant of each other's opinions if they don't concur with their own well um or is the problem a, a problem within the university the old joke i don't know if it was churchill or einstein or some other wit noted that Academic politics are always so tense because they're so meaningless. But um, is 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 the university the cause or the consequence of all this intolerance, or or, or, or both? Yeah, I don't I don't think the university is certainly the cause. Uh, uh, but the university is never, you know, it's never the ivory tower uh, completely. It's always being affected by and then in turn affecting uh, the world outside. And of course, not only is it a place where people go at a shall we say, impressionable age. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of attention being focused, of course, on uh, any of these events that take place. And so they take on a life in the media that goes well beyond the actual events themselves. Um, that being said, you know, to go back to Milo's visit, it was somewhat um, disconcerting, to say the least, to have images of, uh, 
a, a broken glass and a, 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 a you know a, a, a kind of a student center in disarray and fires burning on Sproul Plaza broadcast around the world on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News, uh, you know, when when the event was shut down. So, uh, you know, there, I think I think the campus events are important, uh, uh, even if they don't, you know, as it were, create the problem across the board. But, you know, at this point, uh, the real question, I think, for uh, universities, both for administrators and indeed for faculty, is how is it going to respond? And are we actually uh, 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 consistent in the way in which we apply free speech, for example, to public universities, where it's not a choice on the part of the university whether you do that, since the First Amendment applies to government institutions, or how we how we actually think about and enact academic freedom? And there have been, unfortunately, too many incidents in the last uh, decade, decade and a half, where universities have not been consistent and so have opened themselves up to the charge and. You, alluded to that charge earlier when you talked about the congressional grilling, that um, on some matters, universities are quick to shut speech down and on others, not so quick. Does this, um, all, all too often in, in America, it all boils down to money. You had an interesting piece in, in Time a month or two ago talking about higher education's donor problem uh, with a photo of the ex-head of Harvard, Claudine Gay, was pushed out by donors like Bill Ackman. Is, um, is Nicholas, is the problem money? Is the problem that as wealthy fellows like Ackman give more, write larger and larger checks to universities like Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania, that they feel they, they should or can control what is and isn't said on campus? Well, you know, it actually goes, uh, you know, way back to a famous case that took place at Stanford in 1905, when uh, Mrs. Uh, Stanford, uh, widow of uh, Leland Stanford, who of course had created the university, uh, enjoined the then president, David uh, Starr Jordan, to fire a member of faculty, Edward Ross, because he was against uh, the uh, uh, allowance of immigration for Chinese labor, which was critical for the, for the Stanford business, uh, ironically. The railroad um, business. The railroad business. And uh, in response to, uh, to that firing, uh, one of the members of faculty, Arthur Lovejoy, left Stanford along with quite a number of his colleagues. Uh, Lovejoy went on to, uh, go, went back to the East Coast. He went to Hopkins along with John Dewey at Columbia. Uh, he wrote the Declaration uh, that uh, Principles that basically was the launching of the American Association of University Presidents that took place in 20, in, I'm sorry, in 1915. And the point, of course, is that from that point on, there was articulated a set of principles around academic freedom uh, that um, you know Dewey uh, had, had had worried about uh, getting even worse because of the reliance of these of these universities on on big gifts, on donors, on on big money. Uh, but that being said, uh, you know uh, the Declaration of Principles, the uh, uh, the, the 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 actual. Uh, prescriptions that were laid down by the American Association of University Professors has been taken seriously and you know tenure for the most part has been respected academic freedom has been uh, uh, for the most part uh, observed uh, uh, for you know for the 110 years since uh, 
Uh, but there's always the worry that 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 big gifts and big donors can uh, can exert undue influence on the university. And a few years ago, of course, we were talking about varsity blues, where gifts sometimes big. Sometimes yeah, but that's not legal. The varsity blues stuff. As the chancellor at Berkeley, large budget, huge donor base. Did you don't have to mention names, but did you have experience of wealthy alumni who thought they? because they gave they wrote large checks to you they had a right to encourage certain speech or shut other people up did you ever there have was, this experience? there was some there was some and um and you know what i would argue back with them and i would say well you can't do that and in one case i think i lost a gift most cases i didn't because uh, there had been a culture of acceptance of the idea that academic freedom implied a kind of governance structure in which uh, the university would make its own decisions about everything from hiring and firing a faculty to the curriculum of the courses that we taught. But, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's also an issue of culture and um, what's happening now. And I think the reason I, I wrote that piece in time is that there is a kind of spread of the idea of the activist shareholder in corporate America to the university with the idea that the same kind of Influence can be exerted by certain individuals uh, if they give enough money and if they're, uh, you know, active enough on social media. Uh, so that's why I wrote that. But it's not higher education's only problem, to be sure. No. And what about the, the shall we say, the the customer problem? The the, the kids who now are going to university. I uh, both my kids uh, were or are undergraduates at distinguished and horribly expensive universities. Um, there seems to be, you talked about the 60s. Are the kids going to college these days, um, Nicholas? Are they different in terms of how they are able to debate controversial, sensitive issues? Or are they themselves, Milo might suggest this, are they themselves snowflakes and they simply can't deal with any kind of criticism and they can't deal with hearing stuff that they don't agree with? Well, I think it's a mix of things. I mean, on the one hand, uh, yes, the kids are different because they are much more diverse uh, than they were in the in the 60s and 70s. And uh, so you have, you know, you have uh, uh, really a very different looking student population. If you look at pictures of Berkeley, even during the free speech movement, it was overwhelmingly not just uh, a, a white population, but one that um, couldn't tell this from the photographs necessarily, but one that was overwhelmingly middle class uh, in background and so on. And of course, there are both more uh, underrepresented minorities and, and more first generation students going to college because of the changing practice of uh, recruitment to, to universities. But there's also been, I think, uh, a change in culture. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's been correlated by some observers with uh, the rise of social media and the kind of polarization of political discourse that takes place on, on social media. Uh, but again, I think it's probably uh, uh, related to a whole uh, a set of different factors that uh, make it increasingly difficult to suggest that you can have a, a heated disagreement that can still be, uh, you know, can still be respectful uh, and can still um, uh, uh, be predicated on the idea that it's important to have these disagreements uh, in a university setting where you can debate fundamental principles and still 
you know, accept the importance of uh, both the debate and uh, the other person who takes a different position in that debate. Some people I've heard argue that the kids now, especially at the fancy universities like Berkeley and Stanford, they're so pampered. I don't know what the numbers are at Stanford, uh, but I think the vast majority of people who go to Stanford end up with A's. The same is true at Harvard. That and they have all this stuff laid on for them. They live in luxury dorms. They eat beautifully. They eat high quality food. Uh, their parents, of course, pay uh, foot the bill. Um, that they're, that this class, your the customers at the universities that you you're still at, but you're not running anymore. That that they're simply spoiled. Is is there any truth to that, or is that a reactionary position? <laughs> Well, let me just say, remember, I was at Berkeley, not Stanford. Um, uh, we don't provide sa the same kind of luxury that Stanford. Good. So, That's uh, why I'm a Berkeley person and not a Stanford person. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, uh, I think, you know, Berkeley is an example of a place where uh, there's been a little bit more grit expected of, of all students. Uh, and there are so no grit at Stanford or Harvard. These kids are spoiled. Well, you know, look, I mean, uh, I'm not going to say they're spoiled, but that, uh, you know, but I will say that uh, getting into Stanford or Harvard uh, is uh, is already a great accomplishment. And, um, uh, you know, and the truth is that, uh, you know, it's both a reflection of a certain kind of privilege and it uh, certainly, uh, you know, solidifies. Well, maybe maybe the solution, and we're going to get to solutions after the break, Nicholas, maybe the solution is once you get into Stanford or Harvard, you just get given the degree and then you don't waste four years or parents' money and just go out in the workforce. Well, um, we are speaking with Nicholas uh, Dirks, uh, former chancellor at UC Berkeley, the author of a very interesting and important new book, City of Intellect, The Uses and Abuses of the University. Uh, I want to get to both uses and abuses of the 21st century university uh, after the break. But I want to remind everyone that uh, it's not just universities that are wise and rich intellectually. It's also some of our publications. And Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, is a particularly rich new intellectual uh, publication. Uh, I'm going to run a short feature on it. And then we'll be back with Nicholas Dirks to talk about what's really gone wrong with the American University and how we can fix it in the 21st century. So don't go away, anyone. News, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesquarterly.com. We're speaking with Nicholas B. Dirks, the author of City of Intellect, former chancellor of uh, UC Berkeley, and a man who knows the university system personally and intellectually inside out. Nicholas, um, you begin the book with a quote from the great Palestinian academic, Edward Said, uh, author of, he's no longer around, author of, of many books. I was particularly influenced by his book, Orientalism from 1978. But I wonder whether there's an irony there. Uh, Said's quote you, you take is, is, is 
what universities were. I, I'm wondering whether a younger Saeed would even get a job at a university these days. Yeah, well, you know, I think um, I think somebody like Saeed would get a job. He was uh, a brilliant, brilliant, uh, uh, you know, English professor. And uh, the one thing that people who knew him understood, but uh, uh, is is probably not widely known is that he was incredibly careful about making distinctions between his political uh, life and work and speech, and his academic life and work and speech. And although they 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 were connected in the sense that he had an argument to make in a book like Orientalism that reflected a political sensibility, uh, he was also a kind of old-fashioned pedagogue in the classroom and. Um, uh, would teach, for example, his favorite novel, which was George Eliot's Middlemarch, uh, with the, uh, uh, you know, with with uh, with a sense that you really had to know the text, and he knew it by heart, uh, in order to uh, begin even to criticize it. So, uh, I would hope that that that. Well, he certainly would. I mean, the quote you begin your introduction with from Said is the. American University generally is, for its academic staff and many of its students, the last remaining utopia. Of course, Said was describing the 20th century. What kind of utopia was the university in the 20th century, uh, Nicholas? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I actually quote a number of, uh, of people uh, using the word utopia, and it was used a lot, uh, particularly people writing about the university in the late 20th century. Uh, but I'll also just say, Andrew, that I, um, I actually uh, take my title from another quote that's, uh, uh, that I put early in the book, uh, which, is that, um, which is by Clark Kerr, who was president of the University of California before that, chancellor at UC Berkeley, uh, and who wrote that the city of intellect uh, 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 was part of the 20th century, but the 20th century... Yeah, and this was taken from uh, his, the university... Uh... Yeah, taken from the uses of the university, which of yeah. course I also cribbed from from in the language. So let's remind everyone of those words. Do you want me to quote them? The twentieth century was a grand century. This is what Kerr wrote in the the uses of the university. Twentieth century was a grand century for the cities of the intellect. The century that century is now past, never to be replicated. So, is there a degree of nostalgia quoting Said and Kerr for you? There is, and um, and I, I even write about that at the end of the book, where I say there's 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 a, there's a kind of inevitable nostalgia even in the kind of form of the book, which is part memoir as well as part analysis of the contemporary nature of the university. But um, but I you know I I also uh, am aware of that, and I try to suggest that uh, really my, uh, my point in, in using the term utopia at all is in saying this is something really worth preserving, but that in order to preserve it, and it, it seems to be getting more and more difficult to do so as the years elapse in the 21st century, uh, the university has to change. And it has to, in some respects, change in radical ways, and in some respects, change in ways that I myself would probably not prefer, that would certainly not be in accord with the kind of memory I have of the university in my early days when it did represent a certain kind of utopian idea for me. Although, of course, we all know, uh, Nicholas, that the word utopia is certainly meant that it was invented by uh, uh, by Thomas More, and he meant it ironically as 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 uh, uh, as a reminder that 
quote unquote utopias and, and never quite what they seem. Uh, what was the problem with the utopia of the 20th century? Uh, you, you, you acknowledge your own nostalgia. What were the biggest problems, do you think, with the university in the 20th century? That they were exclusive, that they were male, that they were white, that they were privileged? Well, I think, you know, it depends on how far back you take it. Um, I think, uh, you know, we all uh, know that uh, universities in the U.S. took off after World War II. It, you know, they took off because of the GI Bill, uh, because of uh, uh, a kind of growing realization that a college education was a good idea and the fact that it was affordable made it a, even a better idea. Uh, you know, back in the 1950s and 60s, uh, there was very little tuition to pay at a place like Berkeley. And, uh, and it was a great education that students would get. The, um, you know, in fact, for me, uh, in a way, having gone from Columbia to Berkeley, the idea of utopia was more, much more attached to the great American public university than it was to the private university because it was actually open to many more people and it was much more accessible. But as the university grew, uh, it, uh, it grew and grew and grew. And then of course it got in the crosshairs of politics uh, Ronald Reagan, who uh, began his political career running for governor in California in the uh, in the mid '60s, uh, sort of targeted Berkeley and said one of his principal uh, goals in becoming governor would be to clean up the mess at Berkeley. So you know it wasn't as if the culture wars uh, were any less prominent in American political life uh, then than they are now. Uh, uh, but in uh, in sort of attacking Berkeley and the like, of course, he anticipated the fact that universities would become these big hotbeds of protest in relationship to first civil rights, then uh, the wars in Vietnam and Cambodia, uh, and later on, of course, uh, you know, apartheid in South Africa and now the the, the Middle East. Uh, and it's that kind of that kind of history in which. The university again has not been the ivory tower. It's been it's been very much at the forefront of certain kinds of political movements and uh, and political ideas, uh, but it's 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 also become uh, you know so much more expensive than it ever was before, so much less accessible than it ever was before, uh, uh, and increasingly, uh, uh, and I say this even knowing how political it was in the 1960s and early 70s, so much more political than it ever was before. Uh, I, I'm not sure that a political university is necessarily a bad thing as long as everyone's open about it. So we know the problems or you, you seem to have touched on some of them, both the conservative reaction by men like Reagan and then some of the, the demonstrations of the 60s, which provoked that reaction. So let's get to what we need to do. You're a, a veteran of the wars. You were yourself, in a sense, uh, wounded. What needs to change? You've talked about change. What should happen to universities to make them maybe not quite the utopias that they were, a little bit more palatable and manageable and not in the headlines continually because of the problems associated with them? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, to some extent, universities are going to continue to be in headlines as long as you have young people and large numbers of young people sort of being implored to think about, you know, the meaning of their lives and, you know, what the nature of the world is all about. Uh, and that too, at a time when, you know, there's great alarm about everything from, uh, uh, you know, the place or the, the, the contest over issues like, uh, like race or, uh, 
our modern economic system, climate change, all the rest of it. I mean, universities are not going to stop. And you said this yourself. They're not going to stop being political because they exist in the world and they exist, you know, for young people who are really taking on the world for the first time in a very public kind of way. But I think that um, a couple of things uh, uh, really need to be addressed. I mean, the first is we do have to be, and I mentioned this before, much more consistent in the way in which we apply standards of academic freedom and freedom of speech. And this is something that uh, uh, may mean going up against uh, some kind of uh, contemporary cultural norms, but it nevertheless is critical for universities to continue to be places where they where we everyone recognizes that it's a genuinely free inquiry and uh, uh, an open debate that is that is being desired. But there are so many other issues right now. I mean, the levels of uh, of debt uh, that exist for uh, for people who went to college many times didn't even graduate from college uh, has has been showcased recently as a large part of uh, why it is that uh, younger generations feel that both uh, the university wasn't worth it. Uh, and that uh, the promise of the American dream, you know, ain't out there for them because they are still paying off their student loans rather than putting down mortgages on houses or uh, uh, whatever it is they 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 think they should be uh, doing. So, are you calling for more assistance, lowering the fees? It seems to me, as a parent, paying these ridiculous fees that they're not really justified, but because it's a closed market, you can't really punish your own children by saying it's too expensive to send you to college. Although increasingly, I think parents are doing that. Well, some are, some are. I mean, I think, you know, there, there are lots of us who complain about the university and then, you know, when push comes to shove, you want your kid to have the best opportunity they can have. So you, but the numbers um, Nicholas, are absurd. I mean, if you go to a private college these days, it's about 70,000 a year. So to get, a degree from a decent university and a private university in this country is going to cost you, unless you get scholarships, about $300,000. Where's that money going? Yeah, well, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a truth of administrative life that uh, there's actually, no matter how much money comes in in tuition, uh, there's never enough money to pay for all the, all the things that universities have taken on doing. So one of the things I write about in the book is that uh, I think we've come to a point where we have to begin to think not about what else universities can do, but what they might not need to do. Uh, what are some choices that we can make uh, in order to actually begin to bend the cost curve of higher education? Uh, and, and how do we begin to change things in fundamental ways? Now, you know, there, there are a lot of different things I talk about uh, towards the end of the book. Uh, I talk about the role of technology. I don't believe that technology is going to solve everything. I don't think, you know, online courses are ever going to substitute for the experience of a residential college where you can not only be with fellow students, but, you know, get to know uh, uh, some faculty and have some experiences that exist uh, in the best classrooms. But, uh, you know, but technology, we all found this out during the pandemic, will make it possible uh, for, you know, for example, each college and university to be able to draw upon resources from other colleges and universities for certain kinds of subjects, for certain kinds of classes, for certain kinds of faculty. We also know that anytime you try to make a change in a university, and uh, it's not just my book that talks about this, there's a new book by Brian Rosenberg, who for 17 years was president of uh, McAllister College in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, writes about the same thing. Anytime you try to change something, you, you find out that, uh, you know, faculty governance means uh, that you can't, 
you can't uh, you can't really change anything unless it's additive. Uh, you can't get rid of a department. You can't get rid of a program. You can't get rid of a uh, of an institute once it's set up. Uh, and if you do, you you're 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 entering into a political fight, and too many of those political fights, and you're going to lose your job. So. Uh, there's no incentive. There's no incentive for faculty. There's no incentive for administrators to really take on what would be a thoroughgoing evaluation of what it is that produces these uh, incredible uh, price tags and how to address them. Having said that, you know, I mean, the uh, uh, you know the sticker price and the actual price of, uh, of 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 college educations do vary enormously, and probably you know over fifty percent of most uh, of, of, of most tuition is actually returned in some way or another as financial aid, but still it's too expensive. And even beyond the tuition, you know, to go to Berkeley, you can have a much lower tuition than at a private university if you're a California student, but you know, you have a few problems. First, you have to get in. It's become increasingly scarce resource, increasingly selective and hard to get in. And then you have to live in the Bay Area, which as both of us know, is an enormously expensive proposition. But what's wrong with uh, it being hard to get in? I mean, if if it was easy to get in, everyone would go. I mean, there are lots of colleges in this in 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 the U.S. where anyone can go, and most people don't want to. The reason why the Stanford's and the Berkeleys and the Harvards are always in the public eyes because everyone wants to go there, and then and then yeah, everybody seems to want to criticize them. Yeah, well, uh, indeed, I think you know. Look, I think. The uh, the truth is, and perhaps this is uh, an answer to your question: What was utopian about the twentieth century? Uh, is that you know, if you were uh, uh, graduating in the top twelve percent of a public high school in California in nineteen sixty four, uh, you got to go to the University of California. You might not go to the you know campus that you choose, but you got you got to go and. Uh, that was just, you know, it was just clear if you performed at a certain level, you would get in. It wasn't the same kind of, uh, you know, t uh, uh, incredibly selective uh, process to, to get into these places. And, you know, the truth is there was greater public support for the University of California when more California students got into the university. So, and it still conferred prestige. I mean, it's still a, a great university. You know, so the question, I guess, you know, I'll turn it back to you. I mean, um, uh, uh, do you really think it's a good thing that uh, that that all the all the good universities, in fact, are 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 almost unattainable goods for uh, most of the people who want to go to college? But they're not because when you say unattainable goods, what do you mean? You mean they can't afford it, or because they're just not going to get in? Both. Well, my understanding of elite universities like Stanford is that if you get in and you're from a, a lower income family, they'll, they'll look after you. So I'm not sure that's entirely true. I mean, the nature of the world, again, you don't need me to tell you this, Nicholas, is selective. Not everyone can be a published author or a successful sportsman or a CEO or a professor at one of these universities. So what, once it becomes really easy to get in or once the admissions process is open, then I, I'm not entirely convinced of what the value is of a university degree. Well, you know, I think uh, uh, I don't really think we're uh, on opposite sides here, Andrew. And uh, 
and and of course, you know, I've been an administrator as well as a member of faculty of a lot of selective, you know, colleges and universities. But uh, but I still think that uh, it's uh, it's 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 a problem when you have you know real a real crisis about enrollment in second, third, uh, fourth tier universities, where you know there are worries every year whether you're going to have enough students come to your college to actually uh, uh, continue to be able to stay in business. And then you have a, you know, a, a, a 40 or 50 universities and colleges. Yeah, I wonder whether it's part of the same general process. We deal with this on so many different uh, areas in, in the show of the disappearance of the middle. So you have an increasingly a winner take all world, winner take all society, winner take all universities. Top 50 universities are more exclusive, more expensive, hard to get in. You have this bottom end, which anyone can go to, and, and the squeezing of the middle. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, and it used to be that the great, you know, flagship public universities were much more oriented towards the middle than they've become. Uh, and then you get the segmentation and you get, you know, you get the rich and you get the poor and you get the uh, well-off universities that everybody wants to go to and, and the others. And to what extent should or can universities be mirrors of the socioeconomic architecture of society? We live in a world of, a, a, for better or worse, uh, an American 21st century capitalist system, a winner-take-all system, a tiny elite, a shrinking middle class, a massive uh, underclass. So universities themselves, I mean, I guess you could blame them in part, but mostly their consequences of this re-architecting of American society, aren't they? Yeah, no, no, I think you're right. And not only that, I think a lot of the critiques of, uh, you know, what uh, is often used as a term for what you just described, neoliberalism, are critiques that, you know, um, uh, blame a lot of things from, you know, from uh, changing tax policy, uh, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, to uh, all sorts of other things over the last, over the last 40 years in American life. But, you know, again, to go back to uh, the heyday of a place like the uh, University of California when Clark Kerr was was running it, uh, you know, there there was uh, there was more uh, uh, just plain old more accessibility to the university. At the same time that the university, the University of California, the the, the top one of the top public university systems in the country, uh, really did equip students uh, to go out and um, and have you know, successful lives, uh, which of course at the time didn't necessarily mean going on to, you know, be Elon Musk or, uh, or Jeff Bezos. I mean, it was, uh, it was a different world. Now, you know, uh, how much can the university counteract that? Uh, you know, the university is still a kind of social mobility machine uh, when it functions uh, the way that the great publics used to function. Uh, and it really does provide opportunity. And, you know, look, look at our world today, whether it's, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, the challenges that are coming as well as the opportunities in artificial intelligence. The yeah, you've written, uh, I know you were at Techonomy this year talking about AI. That's a controversial subject. It's yeah. impacting on the university. Finally, um, finally, Nicholas, uh, you, you cite in your book, a, a book by uh, Ronald Musto, uh, The Attack on Higher Education, who is really fearful he, he sees the threat as existential how much of an existential threat do you think all these pressures are on the early 21st century american university there are lots of new initiatives although none of them seem to have 
been successful so far. Is it conceivable that in 100 years' time, a lot of these universities that we take for granted, the Berkeleys, the Stanfords, the Harvards, will no longer be around? I think it's likely that the Berkeley and Stanfords and, and Harvards will be around. I, I, I suspect they'll survive. The, the, the question is going to be, you know, the rest of the system. Uh, and, uh, and I think we're, we're beginning to see, you know, the um, uh, little by little, uh, you know, colleges and universities begin to, you know, really go through major stress. Uh, you know, Musto is using the example of the uh, dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII, and uh, uh, and nobody thought the monasteries were going to disappear. Uh, you know, uh, 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 at that point, either. Uh, and his point, and I guess my point in invoking him, is solely to suggest that uh, you know the, it may not be that universities are about to completely disappear the way that some people have predicted, the way people in Silicon Valley have suggested disruption is going to you know hit higher education and they won't know what's what's coming or what hit them, but that you know there will be a major consequential change that will uh, seriously limit the kinds of opportunities that people have to get a kind of high quality uh, uh, post-secondary school education and for people to continue to operate with universities as centers of research and knowledge production and scientific advancement and so on and so forth. So I don't think it's going to disappear, but it could get a whole lot smaller.